0: Hello. My name is Andrew Laposia and welcome to the Twilight Years. On today's episode, we will be discussing the death and final years of Robin Williams. Normally on the Twilight Years, the people we discuss are those who died of natural causes. However, for today and today only, we are making an exception. And with a figure as iconic and beloved as Robin Williams, it was hard to resist doing an episode on him. Robin Williams began his career in the 1970s doing stand-up in San Francisco and Los Angeles. His act immediately caught the eye of audiences with his rapid-fire improvisation skills and wide variety of voices. He rose to fame in 1978 by starring in the sitcom Mork & Mindy, where he played an Earthbound alien. The show provided a great showcase to his comedic talents and was a huge hit. After Mork and Mindy ended in 1982, he began a successful film career that lasted for over 30 years. He starred in classic comedies such as Mrs. Doubtfire, The Birdcage, The Fisher King, Patch Adams, Good Morning Vietnam, and of course, The Voice of the Genie in Disney's Aladdin. But he didn't just excel in comedy, he was a very effective dramatic actor as well. He was nominated for an Academy Award four times, winning one in 1997 for his performance in *Goodwill Hunting. Robin Williams was often looked at as one of the nicest celebrities, but the man never had it easy. There is a common cliché that comedians often have rough personal lives, and Robin Williams is the poster child of that belief. At the beginning of his career, he was heavily into drugs. He kicked the habit after visiting his friend John Belushi the night he died of a cocaine overdose. Throughout his life, he had an on-and-off addiction to alcohol. He also suffered from severe depression, which led to a tragic ending that shocked the world. At the end of 2007, Robin's marriage to his wife, Marsha, was starting to fall apart. Robin moved out of the house in San Francisco that the two of them had built together. As a last-ditch attempt to save their marriage, they took a family vacation in March of 2008 to Paris with two of their kids, Zelda and Cody. It didn't work, and a few days after the trip ended, Marsha filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. They also broke up their Blue Wolf production company, which by that point had little to nothing going on. Despite their marriage ending, Robin and Marsha were still on good terms, going to lunch together often. They were still supportive of each other and still had affection for each other. In fact, Robin was sure he could salvage their marriage. That summer, he traveled to New York to film the movie Old Dogs with John Travolta. Whenever he had a break, he would call Marcia in San Francisco in an attempt to win her back. But there was no hope, especially with the death of the family's longtime attorney. Robin went back to the town of Tiberon, California, the town he lived in when he was a teenager. There, he bought a house on the small waterfront community Paradise K. It was a quiet little area, and Robin loved that he could live there in solitude. However, he didn't completely seclude himself. He still attended his regular Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. He even sometimes went to a small theater called Throckmorton Theater in nearby Mill Valley. It was a quaint theater that seated 300 people. Sometimes he would go there to perform, but sometimes he would just go to hang out. Eventually, word got out that Robin was frequenting the theater, and more people started to fill up the house, hoping to catch a surprise appearance by Robin Williams. Robin started to develop a whole new stand-up set that talked about all the sadness that had been going on in his life. Soon enough, he signed on to embark on a stand-up tour called Weapons of Self-Destruction. Robin admitted that the money was a big part of starting the tour. He had no movies ready to go, and he had two ex-wives to give alimony to. He even debated calling the tour Remember the Alimony. The tour was announced in summer of 2008 and began later that fall. However, as 2009 began and the tour reached Florida, he began experiencing a hacking cough and dizziness spells. With help from his manager, comedian David Steinberg, Robin went to see a group of Miami doctors. It was determined that he had an irregular heartbeat, a damaged mitral valve that would need to be repaired, and a broken aortic valve, which would need to be replaced. Robin wanted to look at his options before undertaking a potentially dangerous but life-saving operation. Robin called fellow comedian Dana Carvey, who had several angioplasties and a double bypass operation under his belt, for advice. After talking with Carvey and his heart surgeon, Robin made the final decision to undergo the surgery, flying out to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Robin was set to have surgery on March 13, 2009. He was scared. He knew that there was a chance he could not survive. Family members from all over the country came to be with Robin. Zelda and Cody were there, as was his first son, Zach, and his wife. Even Marshall, with whom Robin was in the middle of divorce proceedings came to be by Robin's side. At the Cleveland Clinic, Robin's kids were introduced to a graphic designer named Susan Schneider, whom Robin had started dating after meeting at an Apple store. Almost immediately, Robin's kids grew worried about Susan's relationship with their father. At one point, the surgeons offered the family a pager that would go off if something went wrong. Much to the family's dismay, Susan immediately claimed it for herself to hold on to. Robin woke up from the surgery in the intensive care unit connected to various tubes and wires. He stayed there for the next 10 days. For many years, Robin and his friend Billy Crystal often loved to call each other, performing as various characters and doing voices. Crystal would sometimes call while Robin was recovering, pretending to be a man named Vinny who was in charge of heart valves. Crystal would often have to do these calls through voicemail. When Robin finally heard them, he cried with laughter. When Robin was eventually discharged and began his recovery period at home, he felt different. He suddenly felt a need for human interaction. He said that he learned to appreciate the little things. Back in 2000, when talk show host David Letterman was recovering from quintuple bypass surgery, he turned to Robin for some much-needed laughter. Nine years later, Letterman returned the favor by inviting Robin to be on his show. It would be his first major appearance after the surgery. One of the reasons for Robin's appearance on the show was to promote his appearance in the movie Night at the Museum, Battle for the Smithsonian, but mainly he wanted the public to see him back to his normal self. The show aired on May 12, 2009. Robin entered to him throwing open his jacket, revealing a black t-shirt with a white heart on it. During the interview, Letterman asked Robin if the movie was motivation enough to power through the surgery, but Robin said that the real inspiration was to be alive. During a commercial break, David asked Robin if he got emotional after the surgery, to which he replied, fuck yeah. During the next few months, various friends noticed that there seemed to be a different kind of vibe with Robin, and a better one at that. Comedian Bobcat Goldthwait noted that he was the happiest he had been in years. Robin also took to being a vegetarian. In the fall of 2009, Robin was ready to resume his Weapons of Self-Destruction tour. The rest of the tour ran from September 30th to December 5th. The performances he taped in Washington, D.C. were used for an HBO special. Every show lasted about 90 minutes, and Robin put on his usual voices that the audience knew and loved him for. He also threw out zingers about Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Sarah Palin, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump. There were jokes about recent events in his life, most notably his heart surgery and divorce. By the time the tour ended at the end of 2009, Robin had found a whole new sense of calmness and order. He also continued to appear at the Throckmorton Theater. In 2010, another opportunity came knocking on Robin's door. There was a play that had recently appeared in Culver City called Bengal Tiger and the Baghdad Zoo. The play is a dark comedy drama that is set in 2003 Iraq, just days after the United States invaded to overthrow Saddam Hussein. The main character is the tiger, and he is shot and killed in the first scene after biting a Marine's handoff. For the rest of the play, he wanders as a ghost, giving existential commentary. The actor playing the tiger walks upright and wears no special costume. The play was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and a transfer to Broadway was made. Broadway wanted a star for the lead role, and Robin Williams was who they wanted the most. Robin was given the script and was immediately struck by how powerful it was. Another strong influence in taking the role was his USO trips to the Middle East. The only downside was that Robin would have to commit to at least five months in New York. He couldn't make any movies or other projects that required a large commitment. There was even a chance it could run much longer if it did well. By this point, Robin was in a serious relationship with Susan. Knowing that the two would be separated for a while, Robin proposed to her shortly before he left. They also planned for Susan to come visit once a week. Robin began work on the play in February 2011. The cast and crew were blown away that Robin did not act like a big star with a massive ego, but instead he acted like he wanted to improve his acting skills and was willing to try anything. During a preview on March 11th, much to everyone's surprise, Robin did no ad-libbing and stuck to the script, and he did it well. Robin also got along great with the cast and crew. For a while, Robin had been a contender to receive the prestigious EGOT title, which is the rare achievement of winning an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Previous winners of this award included Helen Hayes, Sir John Gielgud, Mel Brooks, Rita Moreno, and Robin's friend Whoopi Goldberg. All Robin needed was a Tony, but it wasn't meant to be. When the nominations for the Tony Awards came out, Robin received no nomination. In fact, the whole play did not get much of the Tony's attention, something that concerned Robin more than his snub. The only major nomination it received was a supporting actor nomination for Arian Moyade, who Robin got along with splendidly. Robin gave a congratulatory call to Moyade, but Moyade felt he didn't deserve it. No one involved with the play was happy that Robin didn't get a nomination. Even though Robin got snubbed, he presented an award at the ceremony to announce the winner for Best Book of a Musical. On July 3rd, Bengal Tiger closed after 108 performances. It wasn't Robin's fault. In fact, he was encouraged to return to Broadway at some point. Robin turned 60 on July 21st, and his health was good. A few days before his birthday, a party was held at Cavallo Point Luxury Hotel in Sausalito. Three months later, on October 22, 2011, Robin and Susan were married. The ceremony was outdoors and held at Meadowood Valley Resort. 130 people were in attendance, and Bobcat Goldthwait was the best man. For Robin's bachelor party, Bobcat hired a fat stripper dressed as Charlie Chaplin. The ceremony was done by a former Catholic priest named Reverend Peter Dalton. The ceremony was supposed to end with the traditional release of white doves, but instead a white butterfly happened to fly past the couple and down the aisle. They took that as a good omen and went with that instead. By the beginning of 2012, Robin was not working as regularly. And strangely enough, when he did work, the projects had something to do with death. For example, that year he appeared in an episode of the cable TV comedy Louie, written by and starring stand-up comedian Louis C.K., In the episode, Robin and Louie meet up at the grave of a recently deceased comedy club owner, who they both privately loathed. They then go to a club that the man had owned, only to find the employees mourning the man and talking about his generosity. As they leave, Robin says to Louie, do me a favor. Louie replies, I'll go to yours. Robin then says, whoever dies first. Later that year, he had a role in an indie comedy called The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. In the movie, Robin plays a lawyer who is diagnosed with an aneurysm and has 90 minutes to live. In one scene, he attempts suicide by jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge. However, he is saved by the doctor who misdiagnosed him. Some wondered why Robin took such dark roles instead of the kinds his audience knew and loved him for. Money was part of it. After all, he had two ex-wives and a new wife to support. But the truth was, he just liked to work. In the spring of 2012, Robin was given the Stand-Up Icon Award at the Comedy Awards, a Lifetime Achievement Award for a ceremony that Comedy Central put on once before and never again. Robin hated the idea of a comedy awards show, comparing it to a bake-off for bulimics. Still, Robin went and accepted the award, with younger comedians present like Tina Fey and Patton Oswalt, older comedians like Don Rickles, and friends like Robert De Niro. April 11, 2013, saw the death of his comedy idol and later friend and mentor Jonathan Winters. Robin wrote an appreciation essay for the New York Times about his friend. Later that year, he paid tribute to Winters at the Emmy Awards. Robin continued to appear in multiple low-budget movies, except for a small appearance in the biographical film Lee Daniels' The Butler, where he played President Dwight D. Eisenhower, a casting choice that left critics and audiences baffled. However, a career comeback looked to be heading Robin's way when he accepted a role in the CBS sitcom, The Crazy Ones. In the show, Robin would play as Chicago advertising executive, and Sarah Michelle Gellar would play his daughter. It would be his first ongoing television role in over 30 years. The show would be a great showcase for his comedic talents and would pay $165,000 per episode. CBS had a good track record of reviving careers of fading TV stars. Robin was excited. The Crazy Ones debuted on September 26, 2013 to mixed reviews. The problem may have been the show's format. When Robin had started on Mork and Mindy, it was filmed in front of a live studio audience, who gave Robin heavy laughter for his ad-libs. The Crazy Ones was done with a single-camera format, in the same way shows like The Office and Parks and Recreation are done. Some felt that Robin's signature improv skills did not look good on him at his age. One critic wrote, Williams seems exhausted, so is this show. The ratings weren't helping either. The premiere episode was watched by a respectable 15.5 million people who were curious about the series. But after a month, that number was nearly cut in half and continued to drop with each passing week. Robin knew the show wasn't doing well, and he told friends he mainly did it for the money. On top of that, his marriage to Susan was not as fulfilling as it could have been. She more or less lived an independent life of her own. She would often travel with the sons she had from a previous marriage and did not help Robin with his affairs. She often didn't even accompany him when he went out of town. Despite these, friends didn't notice that Robin seemed to be happy and glad to have her in his life. If you're like me and you wanted to start a podcast but were not very tech savvy, you wouldn't have known what to do. Then I heard about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Even though I said I was doing an episode on Robin Williams because of how popular and beloved he was, that was only part of it. Towards the end, Robin was suffering from a variety of health problems. So in a way, Robin is indirectly a great subject for this podcast. In October 2013, Robin began to suffer from several physical ailments. He was suffering from stomach cramps, indigestion, and constipation. He was also having trouble seeing, urinating, and sleeping. His voice was starting to not be as clear, and his posture was different. Sometimes he'd freeze where he stood. Susan had always been used to seeing Robin nervous, but this time his anxiety was at an all-time high. At one point, Billy Crystal and his wife invited Robin to see a movie. It was their first time seeing him in a few months, and he was immediately struck by how frail Robin looked. Meanwhile, the ratings for The Crazy Ones were continuing to tank. As a last-ditch attempt to save the show, the producers brought in Pam Dauper, Robin's old co-star from Mork & Mindy, to make a guest appearance as a potential romantic interest for Robin's character. It was Dauber's first screen role in 14 years. Pam had strayed away from show business to raise the children she had with actor Mark Harmon. Dauber knew that this type of casting was often done for series that were on their last legs, but she took the role out of love for Robin. Pam Dauber's appearance didn't help the show's viewership. In fact, her episode had one of the lowest amount of viewers in the series at that point. The next episode was the season finale, and it was watched by barely 5 million viewers. Shortly after, CBS pulled the plug on the show in March of 2014. Robin didn't seem to mind that the show ended. He hardly had time to mourn the loss of the series. He moved on to filming his role in the third installment of the family comedy series Night at the Museum. He shot the role on location in Vancouver. Everyone close to him hoped that Robin wouldn't take the role. His health was continuing to decline, and they felt he needed to put his career on hold until the illness was under control. But Robin insisted on doing the movie. The production was rough on him. His weight was continuing to drop, and his motor impairments were hard to keep hidden. He was also having difficulty remembering his lines. During production, Robin struck up a friendship with his makeup artist, Sherry Minns. At the end of every day's production, Robin would cry in her arms. She didn't know what to do. At night, Robin wouldn't leave his hotel room, and he had a panic attack at one point. Minns tried to convince Robin to find a local comedy club to perform at, Maybe that could take his mind off things, but Robin didn't want to do it. He said he didn't know how to be funny anymore. Even though Susan stayed home when Robin was away filming, she kept in contact with him, doing her best to talk him down. Under his doctor's supervision, he started taking different antipsychotic medications. However, they only helped some of his symptoms while making others worse. When Robin returned to Tiberon, Susan said that Robin was losing his mind. He would have many restless nights sleeping. On May 28, 2014, Robin was finally given an answer for all his ailments. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Susan tried to look at the diagnosis positively. She thought now they had an answer. Robin could focus on treating it. But Robin was upset. He was offered encouragement that things could be fine if the patient had a medication to respond to. He was told that if that was the case, he could live another 10 years. Robin only told family and close friends about his diagnosis. He called Billy Crystal with the news. Crystal was good friends with Muhammad Ali, who was a long-time sufferer from the disease. He knew a lot of Parkinson's doctors and offered help to Robin, which Robin asked if he could. Those who knew were concerned. They didn't know if he was in a state where help could be given. Things only got worse. Robin would thrash around in bed, unable to sleep. It got so bad, he and Susan had to sleep in separate bedrooms. Robin tried many treatments. He saw a therapist, worked out with a physical trainer, and rode his bike. He also found a specialist at Stanford University who taught him self-hypnosis. Sadly, these treatments only provided minimal help. One day, he ran into Dana Carvey and apologized for stealing a joke from him. Carvey seemed to be confused, saying the joke in question wasn't his. Robin's friend Eric Idle of Monty Python fame was in London organizing a Monty Python reunion show. Idle tried to convince Robin to travel to London to make a cameo during the show. Robin said he could come, but didn't want to appear on stage. Eventually, he said he couldn't come altogether, but told Idle that he loved him very much. He knew that Robin had just said goodbye. In June, Robin checked himself into the Dan Anderson Renewal Center in Center City, Minnesota. The center was an addiction treatment center, and Susan thought maybe his condition could be helped through AA-type treatment. A statement was made to the press that he was, quote, "...simply taking the opportunity to fine-tune and focus on his continued commitment, of which he remains extremely proud. Many felt he had no reason to be there. If anything, it was a place for Robin to take a break and do meditation and yoga. But that was it. Robin came home a short time later. July 21st was Robin's 63rd birthday. He shared his birthday with his friend Cindy McHale, and they would often call each other on that day." When Mikhail attempted to call, she was turned away, saying Robin was not doing well. She knew something was very wrong when he didn't attend a birthday party for George Lucas, an event he never missed. Robin's daughter Zelda turned 25 on July 31st, and that night she went to a dinner with Marsha. Robin wasn't there, but he sent her a necklace with a note that said, You will always be a star to me. Both Zelda and Marcia were very concerned about Robin's well-being. On the night of August 10th, Robin and Susan were at home when suddenly he grew fearful that some designer wristwatches he had were going to get stolen. He stuffed them in a sock and took them to the home of his assistant, Rebecca Spencer, for safekeeping. After Robin got home, he offered Susan a foot massage before she was to go to bed, but she said she was okay. Robin went in and out of their bedroom several times and looked through the closet. He took an iPad out and said he was going to do some reading. Susan took that as a good sign. It had been some time since he read. She thought it was a step in the right direction. Robin then went to his separate bedroom and closed the door. The next morning, Monday, August eleventh, 2014, Susan woke up and saw that Robin's door was locked. She was glad he was getting some rest. Rebecca Spencer and her husband Dan came to the house. When they asked how the weekend went with Robin, Susan optimistically said he was getting better. Susan planned to meditate with Robin that morning, but at 10.30 a.m. he wasn't awake yet, so she decided to go run some errands. At 11 a.m., Rebecca and Dan were concerned that Robin hadn't yet woken up. They slid a note under his door asking if he was okay, but got no response. At 11.42 a.m., Rebecca texted Susan saying she was going to wake Robin up. Rebecca forced the door open with a paperclip and came across a gruesome and upsetting scene. Robin had hanged himself with a belt. Robin Williams was dead at the age of 63. 911 was called at 11.55am, and the paramedics were there within a few minutes. Almost instantly, Robin was pronounced dead. No attempts at resuscitation were made, and there was no suicide note. A search through Robin's cell phone, laptop, and iPad showed no evidence that he was contemplating suicide. During the police investigation, Susan was asked if Robin had ever discussed suicide, but she said he had not. There was no alcohol in his system, and the only drugs present were prescribed medications. Before Robin hanged himself, he placed a towel in between the belt and his skin, most likely to reduce pain. An examination also showed cuts on his left wrist. Nearby was a pocket knife with dried blood. The first announcement of Robin's death came three hours later via a news release from the coroner division of the Marin County Sheriff's Office. About an hour later, Robin's publicist, Mara Bucksbaum released a short statement announcing his death, saying he was battling severe depression. Then a statement from Susan was released expressing her sadness. Almost instantly, Robin's death broke the world. Various celebrities released statements that mourned the loss of a man they widely respected. Many of the late-night shows were being taped as soon as word broke. The host took time out of the show to pay tribute to Robin. Locations important to Robin's life and career were made into shrines, such as his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the San Francisco house where Mrs. Doubtfire was filmed, his home in Tiberon, and the bench in Boston's public garden where a pivotal scene in Goodwill Hunting was filmed. Social media blew up over the news. Many posts reflected how the whole world was feeling. Many quoted lines from his performances, and some simply spoke about how much he meant to them. One of the most widely circulated images was of Aladdin hugging the genie with the quote from the movie saying, Genie, you're free. Some wondered what Billy Crystal would say. Crystal and his wife were on a month-long European trip when they heard the news, but they canceled the rest of their trip to go back home and mourn their friend. He simply tweeted, no words. Robin's children did not release any statements until the next day. Marcia also made a heartfelt statement. By this point, Robin had already been cremated and his ashes were scattered in San Francisco Bay in the same way his parents had been. Two days after Robin's death, Susan revealed to the world that he was suffering from Parkinson's. This statement brought some kind of closure to the world. As horrible as Robin's final act was, it showed the decision of immediate terminal pain or an untold lifetime of further pain. Two weeks after Robin's death, it was decided that a special portion of that year's Emmy Award telecast would pay tribute to Robin. For the segment, Billy Crystal took to the stage to share some anecdotes about his friend. After telling some humorous stories, he gave a heartfelt speech. During the dress rehearsal for the broadcast, Crystal cried the whole way through. Composing his speech was even more difficult. Just a few months after Robin's death, his autopsy report was released. One aspect of Robin's body at the time of his death was the presence of Lewy body dementia, a disease that causes protein buildup in the brain. This ailment had been previously undiagnosed. In fact, he may have been misdiagnosed with Parkinson's. Lewy body dementia is not quite the same as Alzheimer's. With Alzheimer's, the patient has trouble remembering. With Lewy body dementia, they remember things but have trouble retrieving the memories. And with Parkinson's, the motor control portion of the brain is harmed. Louis body dementia attacks portions of the brain that control visual and spatial aspects, as well as decision making. This proved that Robin's condition was more advanced than initially believed. The term national treasure is not a term to be tossed around lightly, but Robin Williams fits that term greatly. When the talk of celebrity deaths that affected the masses comes up, Robin Williams' name is often mentioned, as he should be. Robin was always a strong part of the cultural zeitgeist. Thank you all for listening to The Twilight Years. Please don't forget to subscribe, and if possible, leave me a review. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. The links are included in the description of this episode. Is there anyone you would like to see talked about on this podcast? Let me know, and I will do my best to get to them. Thank you again for listening. My name is Andrew Laposha, and I will see you next time.